Thank you all for joining us for another episode of March Madman, the quest to find the greatest horror film of all time. And season one, of course, is dealing with haunted house movies. I think this promises to be a classic episode. We are putting haunted house movies through a rigorous testing process right now to determine which is the ultimate haunted house movie ever made and right now of course we are in the dark heart of the sinister 16 and tonight's field could be our most contentious yet four flicks are going head to head in a do or die battle to see who makes the evil eight each of these movies has proven its worth to get here but somebody's gotta go We've got Zelda Rubenstein's house cleaning service, bag-headed cherubs, lobotomized HVAC workers, and pickle-thieving house hiders. There's something for everybody here, everybody. Making house calls tonight are me, some dude named John Evans, produced horror screenwriter Vic Wheat, and reality TV producer Rich Eckersley. Don't call him Rick's Rick, folks. I lost a finger doing that. Rich, what's good in your world tonight, buddy? Well, I'm glad you asked, John. I'm in a I'm in an interesting headspace. I went out to the lake this past weekend and I encountered my own doppelganger. Oh, <laughs> Much like the hit film Lake Mungo from last weekend, it was a vision of myself from the future, but instead of a waterlogged, bloated corpse, it was just me half in the bag, eating pizza, and watching Chopping Mall. So, <laughs> I'm feeling optimistic. I think, I think there are good things ahead for me. Oh, what lake was this? It wasn't Lake Mungo, I assume. Uh, lake Piru. It's a, it's a man-made lake. It's not as glamorous as the, the holes <laughs> that I have out in Australia, but it'll do. Nice, nice. And... Um... Interestingly, there's a doppelganger in The Orphanage, one of the movies we're going to look at tonight. So I think that was, a, was an interesting uh, reference there, Rich. But uh, Vic, how the hell are you, my good man? I, I'm going to respond to both of you. First, Rich, I'm just going to point out, because I'm guessing you didn't know this, that Lake Piru was on fire this weekend. So I wonder if you had anything to do with that, with your, your drunk uh, pizza... Chopping mall doppelganger. If, if if there's anything you want to confess to here, only time will tell. I mean, that was yeah. I gotta wait and see how keep, this keep, plays out. That's right. Keep drinking, and we'll see if this gets dark and confessional toward the end. Uh, speaking of dark confessions, I don't know if people know this. I, I, I'm sure I probably mentioned this at some point, but I am in my in my other life. My own doppelganger is Vic Wheat the facilities manager for a variety of entertainment companies. And, John, I just want to point out that the the men in Session 9 are not HVAC workers. HVAC stands for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. They are uh, remediating asbestos, which is a very different profession. So I'm sorry I bored the shit out of everybody. The world's on fire, and that's not what HVAC is. 
But otherwise, I'm, I'm very excited about this. You know, I debated, like, what to say there. And I'm like, I could say asbestos remediator, but it didn't have the same ring to it. But I should have known that Vic would call me on that one. <laughs> that little inaccuracy. But uh, thank you, thank you, Vic. And uh, the answer is always, my doppelganger did it. That'll get you out of jail. But furthermore, I just want to state, may my day job never impose on this wonderful, magnificent playground of a world that we've created ever again. I don't want to talk about HVAC. (laughs) I don't want to talk about anything that happens outside of these, these four fantastic horror movies that we're getting ready to talk about. You know, it did hit a little too close to home watching Session 9, seeing all those uh, N95 masks. I'm not going to lie. Ah, geez, that's a good point. (laughs) I I, I do think, Vic, actually, if you look at tonight's spread between Session 9, the Orphanage, the Pact, there's a lot of interest in the infrastructure of uh, dwellings and homes, uh, systems, ventilation ducts, basements. I mean, there's a lot we can get into if you want to. I have some I have some notes on the pact in particular, but we'll get there. Two of these four movies feature people poring over blueprints, so I think you're onto something there, Rich. True facts. I will say, and because this was something that really struck me about these four films in particular, but also the genre as a whole, that I think the the public perception of horror films is of, you know teenagers out in the woods getting drunk and having sex and getting butchered by a guy in a mask. These four films, and a lot of what we've talked about, but these four in particular, almost all hinge on family dynamics. These are all about families and the ways that they come apart and the ways that they pull together. And I just think that's sort of an interesting element that seems pretty specific to the haunted house uh, subgenre as compared to some of the other genres we're going to be talking about down the road. You bet. I mean, that that's come up pre- in previous shows that, yeah, this is the subgenre of the family, 100%. And most of them are nuclear families. Not all of them are. There's a lot of sort of deconstructing traditional families in this movie, in these movies. And one of the interesting things that I was going to bring up when we got there is that the orphanage kind of subverts it, and we'll we'll deal with this later. But the interesting dynamic between the husband and the father and, and the wife, and how that relationship does not hold up through the whole thing, and essentially the husband kind of leaves his wife to deal with this shit. It, it really kind of stood out to me in the context of all of these movies and how insular the families are and how it's kind of all about the families hanging together instead of splitting up. I found that kind of weird and striking, even though I'm not sure how much the movie actually makes of it. But I think that's a very interesting point there, Vic. And I will just throw out for a second that even though Poltergeist doesn't have a blueprint, it's all about a planned community, a subdivision. And we we, we have a uh, a realtor, I guess, um, is the is the the male lead in the in the movie, and it's kind of all about this sort of prepackaged community uh, that sprung up where it, it it didn't belong. So yeah, there's a lot of commonalities here. Glad you brought that up. Well, uh, why don't we get right down to it? And in our uh, our journey through haunted buildings and structures and neighborhoods and what have you, uh, I think we should start with sort of the 
modern granddaddy of them all, and of course this is the film that many of us grew up with, I am talking about 1982's Poltergeist, which uh, is our number four seed in the tournament, meaning only three movies were ranked higher by the three of us, and it's uh, it definitely has its place in history. It's, um, I would say, one of the films that doesn't hold up all that well to the modern eye. It feels extremely dated, and a lot of things, I'm talking about visual effects and sort of uh, social mores and things of that nature, just scream 80s in this in this movie. But uh, I think it's a classic for a reason. And I hope everyone's been listening to the show for a while. We gave you kind of an overview, Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg, blah, 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 you know, earlier when we covered this movie. And if it survives, we'll get into a lot more detail. But tonight's show, we're really just like, it's all about the slugfest, man. We are going to match it up and uh, see how it fares against uh, the orphanage. So let's start with, in this round, we're looking at highlight sequences, low light sequences, and endings. That's the kind of uh, organizing principle of each segment. And so to kick off Poltergeist, let's start with Rich and your highlight sequence of the film. This was a tough one. I do like this movie. I wanted my highlight to be something that shows off what I feel this movie does very well which is the promise and the disappointment of the American dream and, and the different ways that the characters see through that. I nearly put the national anthem playing on television as a favorite <laughs> scene because it, it is extremely indelible and somehow seems to capture what this movie is trying to get at in many ways, both the, the, the pop culture of, of television and, and the idea of the, the American dream and, and the dissolution of it. But that's not really a scene. Um, instead, I chose uh, a scene that I mentioned when we were doing this the first time around, and it's one that I, uh, you know, I didn't pick the, I did not pick the steak uh, face melting scene because I assume that someone else is going to to run with that. Um, instead, I went with the very first scene where Joe Beth Williams' ma mother character discovers that there is a force in the house where she's in the kitchen. And suddenly the chairs are moved, and she asks the daughter Carol Ann if she, if she moved them. Carol Ann says no. They turn around, and suddenly the chairs have been stacked up again. It then goes on to go through a few beats where the, the, the mother's trying to understand what's going on. The next thing you know, the father comes home, and she's, the, the mother is sliding chairs across the floor to show to Craig T. Nelson. is sliding their own daughter across the floor, and then they're going off to talk to the neighbor. There's something that is very simple and just very lovable about the tone of this, and I think it spreads the rest of the movie. There's a giddiness to the way that they react to the idea that their home is effectively being haunted, and it's not something you see in any other film on our list, and it somehow makes perfect sense that their immediate reaction to this would be this this confused emotional elation that they just don't know how to deal with because they're not yet being threatened. It's, it's much like the movie. It's fun and it's exciting, 
But more than anything else, it's that there's a hint of fear, but you're always just sort of out of its reach. There's never any real danger. And that's something that I think extends to a lot of the scenes in this movie, you know, usually for good effect and sometimes not so much. I love that you're putting your finger on that, Rich, because that is something I sense and it is really worthy uh, of talking about that the scene where that you're discussing where Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson go to the neighbor and they're almost like they have this like weird childlike giggly maybe they're stone drunk like it's it's just this interesting energy of being silly but they're so exuberant with discovery and the sort of newness and the novelty and the weirdness and they're just going with it and i do find it tremendously charming and when you were talking about the the tv part of it i think that is one of the weird undercurrents of the movie that does bear examination that i'm not really you know delving into it in in my choices for the night but i think that's something that if we if we get deeper into the movie, it's really interesting that all of this hinges on the television and its role in the family, and it's it's the gateway to many things, and some of them are distinctly bad, but it has access to their minds and and their hearts, and it's sort of this omnipresent, and it becomes kind of in a way, as we'll see at the end of the movie, which I will touch on it becomes kind of the avatar or the symbol of, of the evil, uh, of the, of the threat. And there's, there's a lot going on there, but I will say that like, this was something that existed, that star spangled banner sign off with this little cheesy montage of Iwo Jima and whatnot. This was a real thing. And I can't think of any other movie or TV show of any note that actually used it. And this, this movie uses it to such tremendous effect. And of course, now it's a footnote of history because that, that, you know, is no, no longer relevant to anyone, but that literally happened every single night when network television uh, signed off and it went to snow. And I think it's absolutely genius to draw on it and use it the way that this movie does to kind of represent the sort of the liminal state between consciousness and slumber and dreamland and another world that, that ends up happening in this movie. It does kind of blow me away. Uh, Vic, are you ready to weigh in on this? Yeah. My pick when I was watching this again, and this is one of those movies that I've seen a hundred, I mean, not literally a hundred times, but it feels like I've seen it a hundred times. And so trying to watch it and see what was jumping out at me now, and especially, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting watching it now is I was, you know, the kid's age when I saw this the first time. And now I'm Craig T. Nelson's age. And it's it's a very different set of eyes to, to watch the movie through. Emily pointed out at one point, Joe Beth Williams says that she's 31 and they seem to have a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Yeah, she would have been 16 or 17 when she conceived this kid. Yeah, so that again, things that you don't notice when you're 10, that all of a sudden you're like, huh, that's, a, that's an interesting choice. So it, it made me think a little bit of what lies beneath, where my immediate thing was, well, maybe it's Craig T. Nelson's kid from a previous relationship or something. I don't know. One of the things that I did notice this time that I hadn't noticed before is, Rich, that scene when she goes around the kitchen table and tucks in all the chairs 
And then she goes back into the kitchen and she gets something out of a cupboard. And then when she turns around, the chairs are all up on the table. That's another single take, uh, what they what they call in the business a one That's a, a, a one much like Zemeckis used to such great effect in What Lies Beneath, when she comes out of the bathroom, goes around the corner, sees the steam coming out, turns on the light, and the bathtub is full of water again. So I, I just think that's a it's really an interesting technique that I always look for in horror films because it really does, without even consciously realizing it as a viewer, I think you go, holy shit, how do they do that? Like that again, that doesn't I'm not saying that's a conscious thought, but it makes it more startling when you see it in a single take like that. So I thought that was that is a, an effective scene for a number of reasons. My highlight was the humor that there are these moments of levity that you're not going to find, say, in the orphanage or the pact that really sets us apart. And it's part of what makes it that fun popcorn, Rich used the word giddy, broadly appealing commercial fare that is also frequently a really scary horror film. And the, the moment, to me, the highlight of that is... When the ghost hunters first show up and Craig T. Nelson is leading them up the stairs and one of the ghost hunters is explaining how he has he has a recording of a matchbox car moving 17 feet over seven hours. It's not 17 feet. It's like way fewer than that. I love what you're talking about. But yeah, yeah. it's like it's even ridiculously, um, you know, pathetic. It moves like yeah. six feet in seven hours six, or whatever. Six feet in seven hours. Yeah, that he has to so slow that he has to record it on a stop motion camera and he's so proud of it. And Craig T. Nelson's everything, his performance, his expression, it's so deadpan when he's just like, yeah, we don't, we don't go in the room anymore. And then he opens the door and of course everything is in chaos. The beds are spinning around the light and you know, the lamp and the, and the light bulbs sort of screw together and turn on and then zip off. And you see the expression on all of their faces. It's just, it's a, it's a great moment. Like it's, it feels, honestly, it feels like a Spielberg moment. Due respect to, to Toby Hooper. This feels like one of those moments that Spielberg would have seen or, or come, you know, worked with a screenwriter on and said, that's a fucking movie. Get that scene in there. It's brilliant. There's a lot of, and there's a lot of moments like that. I mean, cause the other one that really leaps out is them rolling the TV out at the end. Yes. Like this movie, this movie goes out on a punchline basically and it works. I mean, that's, that's really, that's a lot of what makes it work is that humor that's worked into the, into the script and worked into the scenario. I gotta say, we're all using the word brilliant here and I'm not done. Like I have even another, uh, for my highlight sequence, I use that word. And I think there's something to be said for that. Even though I will say that the scene that you just mentioned, Vic, with the everything, the toys flying around, I think it's a 10 in terms of concept and writing. And it's about a, a three or a four in terms of modern expectations for realization, because the effects are pretty laughable at this point. But that does not that does not diminish what is going on in this movie and, and how uh, smart and cool and, and effective and funny and just the, the full spectrum of entertainment that this movie gives you, as you said, with, with humor and, and horror and all of it, uh, as, as sort of dated as a lot of things are, 
I, I do think this is a wonderful movie. So everyone has brought up some really cool stuff. Uh, my highlight sequence is the scene where the guys are trying to watch the football game and the neighbor keeps changing the channel to Mr. Rogers. No, I'm kidding. But I do like that scene. And it is kind of indicative <laughs> of what you're saying. <laughs> like It is this wacky, weird comical scene um but the whole whole montage that leads up to that thing where like the the dude's like driving his uh riding a bike with a six-pack and the kids are chasing him with rc cars and um (laughs) yeah it's just it's so goofy the whole thing is just so goofy which is which i think i think it kind of bite in the ass but we could we could talk more about that in a little bit yeah, yeah, no, that is a ludicrous scene, and, and it, it, it's especially ridiculous that the 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 cars trip the guy up. He crashes, but unde- undeterred, he leaves like half of the twelver of cans of fizzing beer and just you know races in. I think he even leaves the pizza on the street and and dashes in. And I mean, it, it's it's certainly got the energy and the sort of bravura quality that you look for from a Spielberg uh, sequence. But it, it is kind of over the top at the same time. And a lot of things are over the top in this movie. But putting that aside for now, my favorite scene is uh, plot point two. It's right before the actual climax of the movie. And this is such an amazing climax that I believe audiences at the time, I certainly did when I was a kid, not having seen movies with you know three or four climaxes in it. I thought that was going to be the pinnacle of the movie's drama. And I'm talking about when they send Joe Beth Williams into the ghost dimension to get Carol Ann back. I think it's a hell of a well-executed set piece. Here's where Brilliant comes in. What a concept to have the entrance in the closet the exit a point in space near the, the living room ceiling, and we don't ever know what's going on in between those doorways. I really admire the choice to keep the world of the dead off screen here versus like Insidious or something, which I guess at that point, it's time to show us what's in their world. But when this movie came out, it only heightens the wonder and the suspense of the sequence not to see it. And it's still really tense when she goes in there. I will say it does get kind of comical how Zelda Rubenstein kind of whipsaws the parents between go into the light, don't go into the light, the instructions that they need to give Carol Ann. But I think the challenge of trying to get this little girl to do what you need her to do is really novel and effective. The scene gets very gripping with the playing out of the rope into this portal. How much rope, how fast you play it out, how fast do you tighten it up? All the little beats throughout this set piece as they try to pull off this rescue are just, just crackerjack stuff. And it, it's such a wonderful, complex, ultimately thrilling and satisfying, exciting, cathartic sequence that you, you think that the movie could absolutely end at that point. So that is my choice. I'm really glad that you brought up crackerjacks, John. Oh, no, no, I mean, uh, the, the light going into the light. Um, I, I, so a real question for you guys. I was kind of watching it a little passively on this, this rewatch that I did this time. And I got thrown off by it last time. Is the, the fact that they keep going back and forth on whether or not she's supposed to go into the light. Is that just weird slash poor writing or is, is there a, is there a strategy going on there that wasn't, reading to me because I wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting why they were being jerked back and forth on whether she should be going into or out of the light. And like, it, it got a little annoying after a while, but See, I, I get it. 
I, I get it, and I have the same reaction to a point, but I think I do understand it, ultimately. I think that there are two lights. There's the light, which means you're leaving this plane and you're going into the afterlife, afterlife, heaven, for lack of a better term. And then there's the light represented by our side, our world. And Zelda is kind of navigating Carol Ann in between these these two places. And at times, Tangina, that's Zelda Rubenstein, wants her to go towards the portal. And then other times where she wants her to go away from the beast, which is kind of, you know, closer to the exit of that world into where we'll never get her back. And I think that she's, you know, sort of aware of where she is and it's a little less clear to the audience, but she definitely doesn't want her to, you know, get out of our reach uh, permanently by going on to, you know, her great reward or whatever. That was my interpretation, but I, I don't, I can't say it's airtight. Vic, did you have thoughts on it? I will say that I shared Rich's confusion about the go into the light, don't go into the light. I also agree that your explanation makes a fair bit of sense, and I'm sure there's a there's a way to parse it out. There's too many smart people going through the script that there's not some rationale behind it, but it doesn't come through clearly in the scene. Right, but they are. I mean, they are having fun with it, and that like, wait, wait, you told her told her not to run into the light, and now you want her to go into the light. Like, you know, it's it adds to sort of the chaos and the confusion of the scene that she keeps contradicting. Uh, you know, whether she should go into the light or not go into the light. So I think it is purposeful. Um, and I think they get mileage out of it. But is it is it completely logical? You know, maybe not. You think it's possible that Tangina just has no fucking clue what she's doing? Well, I mean, given the outcome, <laughs> this house ain't yeah. clean. <laughs> no, I mean, she, I, I was kind of watching that in this viewing. And we definitely get the sense she cooks up this whole plan, which is successful. The rope and the, you know, the tennis balls and like, that's all Tangina is how they actually orchestrate this to, to get Carol Ann back. So she definitely gets a win here, even if she's dead wrong about the house being clean or not. Okay. So that takes us to low light sequence and uh, let's just to keep shaking up the order. I will go first this time, and I think there are a few contenders for low-light sequence. Um, I don't think we'll all hit on the same one here, but who knows? Uh, for me, it's the sort of earnest techno-gobbledygook stuff that the ghost hunters are spouting off at various points. I think it's totally ridiculous after that great scene that we mentioned earlier where the guy's talking about a car moving three feet in seven, uh, uh, you know, a toy car moving seven feet in, in three feet in seven hours, and they open the door, and this bedroom is filled with levitating toys. And then they keep talking about nonsense pseudoscientific reasons for what could be going on here after having seen that. Like, that kind of, that should, you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, um, natural gas emissions or, or magnetic uh, fields or you know, all the kind of stupid stuff that they, you know, oh, well, I'm scientifically discussing various variables that could be at play here. 
uh, especially the guy who, who rips his face off keeps talking about it. And, and it just doesn't ring true at all for me. It just felt like they had to cram it in because they did research into parapsychology and they've seen other movies, uh, you, you know, in this area and they wanted to use it. And honestly, I just wanted to fast forward that stuff and it annoyed me. That's probably a pretty idiosyncratic choice, but that, that was one of the things I liked least about watching the movie this time. Uh, Vic, what's yours? I had a hard time coming up with this, which is weird because I, generally speaking, I feel like the movie suffered in this viewing. I did not come out of this quite loving the movie as as much as I have in previous viewings. And yet, when it came time to, to drum up a low light, I was kind of banging my head against the wall going, well, like, what's the... What's the scene that doesn't work? Like, what are the things that really stand out? And there's not a lot of it. So it's it's weird in that the the movie runs on kind of a, a, a solid ground and there are things that pop out. I mean, it'd be easy to talk about the effects, and that was that was kind of my knee-jerk reaction. One of the notes that I have is a lot of the dialogue with the the ghost hunters. Although I love the scene between Beatrice Strait and Joe Beth Williams when she's explaining that, mm-hmm. you know, she's just a psychologist and they don't get degrees in this. And she's, you know, yeah. uh, it's a very, it's a very cool, honest scene in the middle of this that, that felt very realistic. And I like that. I love that they take the time to slow the pace in that scene. It's in the quiet hours of the night and they're sort of speaking in hushed tones and kind of opening up to each other in such a fast paced kind of crazy blockbustery movie. Totally agree. That's a fantastic little digression that totally works. For me, there weren't a lot of like cringy scenes that I, that I couldn't wait to get away from. The two notes that I have in addition to what you said about the Ghost Hunters dialogue is the the guy stumbling through the house with the, the busted beer can shooting beer all over the house. I was kind of like, who the fuck does that? Yeah. I don't know. that. Like, I get that it's supposed to be a humorous moment, but I, it really, it sort of pulled me out where I was looking around my house going, I would punch that guy in the face if he carried a, a busted beer can. <laughs> yeah, that that feels like batteries not included, Steven Spielberg. You know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> very very well put. Uh, the other one, and I this has never left out at me before, but it sure looks like the nerdy ghost hunter prior to the famous snake scene. It seems like that guy goes into their fridge at three in the morning to get a snack and pulls out a steak. Yes. Yes. Which he is then going to cook. And I was like, I'm looking at it going, wait, did they bring the steak? Or is he just eating like a big, you know, a $15 piece of meat? Right. That that crossed my mind too. This is the same movie where the men who are digging the pool are openly hitting on their underage daughter (laughs) and then reaching into their windows to eat food off of the kitchen counter. (laughs) And drink their coffee. Off by the mother. Yeah. Yeah, Rich, that was a that was a different time, Rich. Okay, it was no, it's not okay. Sorry, it's not okay for the, for the listeners. Rich brought that up in a text message to us, and I thought about mentioning that, and then I was like, I can't steal it from Rich. What yeah. if that's Rich's moment? So yes, I agree. That bothers me too, but not as 
for some reason, not as much as the steak. I think that says more about me than it does the movie. But Well, Rich, if you have two low-light sequences, that's fine. But we do need to talk about this, the scene that you texted us uh, about because that is, is noteworthy. But, but Vic, that uh, stood out to me as well when the guy casually takes their, their steak and starts grilling it. And it didn't feel like something... Uh, that he would have brought, you know, like, oh, well, I'm going to bring a steak and I'll have that around 4 a.m. or whatever. Bring if he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's weird either way. Like, I yeah. hope you don't mind. I brought an unwrapped steak. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it on the counter. <laughs> Rich, take it away. I'm yeah. I'm with both of your selections. Vic, you were a little over the map, but I, knew, I never thought that you were off in terms of tone. This, yeah, I already brought up that I found the guy with the beer, and that whole sequence bothered me in that – in a way that the, the low light I chose I also speaks to this. Like I just got taken out of the movie sometimes by how glib it was, and it in some way made the movie's – biggest strengths also it's its biggest weakness and and uh and maybe not quite as invested in it um john i just wanted to comment on 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 your pick as well that scene actually totally flew under the radar for me because i did tune out i think both times i watched it but i recall the scene and the second time i saw it the only way that i could justify it in my head was that they were trying to set up the nerdy scientist so that you understood the impact of his stake trip yeah. later in the film and the fact that he skips town immediately after that and that that was some sort of character investment. But I'm with you. I thought the scene felt like the most rote element of this movie and just something lifted from any other generic haunted house film and didn't add very much. To address that real quick, I think that it crossed my mind that, yeah, that might be some kind of kind of character arc that he refuses to believe, you know, the evidence before his eyes. And he's kind of like the guy in The Legend of Hell House where uh, – or a couple of these movies really where the guy just absolutely resists the, the idea of this being real or beyond what he, he expects it to be to the bitter end and – that you know could be one way to go with it, but it doesn't work here. There's not enough invested in it. There's not enough setup, and there's not a lot of payoff to it. But but not only that, like the dude saw the stuff flying around in the room. Like that's not sunspots or something. Like he saw all the toys, you know, <laughs> levitating. So <laughs> it it just doesn't work. I had the same exact reaction to it. My low light though was. The scene that immediately follows the the climax that you were describing, John, is a sort of moving out scene, which is logical at this point. The film smartly puts you in a place where the the family can't leave the haunted house because their daughter's trapped inside of it. So obviously they haven't moved. Once the daughter's rescued, then it's, it's safe to go somewhere else. What strikes me so weird about this is that they've just been through this heavy phantasmagorical paranormal drama traveling through dimensions. There's a beast in their home. And yet we just skip to what seems like the next morning, maybe a few days later. It's, it's a little hazy, but it recently happened. The daughter, the teenage daughter is just going out on a date. The dad's going into the office to go tell his boss off, presumably. He keeps promising that they're going to move that night, but then the scenes that follow are the son going to bed 
and the mom is dying her hair. Like, who the hell is doing this on the day that they move out of a home? Like, it's all a setup for another climax of the film. And it does some disservice to the story and it makes you feel like they're not very invested in the actual chain of events. It, it just becomes a funhouse of horror after this. And while it is it is literally that, it's just sort of a, a tour through a house of horrors that goes on after this scene, it makes it feel like such an afterthought of storytelling. This is a movie that is, at the end of the day, more interested in the Darth Vader lamp in the kid's room than it is in really telling a coherent tale. And I do think that that like sticky self-referential self-referential glibness, you know, makes this kind of an empty saccharine treat at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's more like complex and ambitious than something like paranormal activity. But I also feel like in a way like paranormal activity is like a spiritual, spiritual successor to this film. You know, it's just like poltergeist. It just, just with no production value. Well, I did think of paranormal when you guys were talking about the sort of one oneer thing, the one take thing, because uh, you know, with the chairs and everything, that's something that, of course, they do in the paranormal movies. But uh, wow, that was kind of a harsh uh, broadside against the whole movie, there, Rich. But uh, in the interest of time, I, I don't think I'm going to try to uh, rebut it at this point. But I don't entirely agree with all of that, though. I, I certainly see your, your points. And you know, and I agree up to a uh, definitely to an extent. But let's let's get to ending. And Rich, uh, what are your thoughts on on the ending? That's a good segue. The ending is fun. I mean, the the ending services the movie well in in that it basically just pulls out all the stops. You know, it's it's a fireworks show, and this is this is the grand finale. Yeah. Is we're gonna have the we're gonna have the the beast emerging. Out of the wall, we're gonna we're gonna dump Joe Beth Williams all around the room in her underwear. Then we're gonna throw her in a muddy pool, and corpses are gonna pop out, and gravestones are coming out of the the ground. It feels like a Disneyland ride of some kind, uh, specifically like the Indiana Jones Disneyland ride. And you know, the one thing that that struck me as odd about it was that Craig T. Nelson stops to to scream at the realtor. You know, you didn't move the bodies. You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies in a weird chunk of expositional dialogue that's explaining it to the viewer when I thought that, that was already pretty obvious. But also who would stop to yell at someone, you know, about the thing that they did wrong in, in the midst of all this. But this is a a pretty horrific, fun little blast of activity. I do enjoy the way that they eventually just get in the car and disappear. I like that the the or the, the daughter shows up again. I can never remember the. This is a total side note, but keep, trying to keep track of where the teenage daughter is in this movie is almost a drinking game. She's constantly disappearing for long stretches because she's that she's going to go stay with someone else, and then she's back, and then she's gone. But they, uh, you know, the, so the whole family finally piles in the in the car and, and gets the hell out of there, which is great. And we we already mentioned the the scene where they check into the hotel, and ultimately Craig T. Nelson pulls the television out. Uh, I seem to remember someone here having a problem with that beat, but I always really liked it. And it's one of the things that I remembered about the movie before I rewatched it again recently. Uh, it's a pretty indelible image. It has a beautiful, you know, score led by a, a like a children's choir, very like innocent and, 
and curious, but spooky at the same time. And it's also a very quiet, you know, we mentioned it ends on a punchline, but it's a very quiet punchline. It's a nice way out of the film. It's very well done. Well, I'm going to withhold comment for now and throw it over to Vic. I feel the same way, maybe a little less enthusiastic about it. It's good. Like it's, I like that they go back to the pool. That's sort of an interesting set piece that they find some cool stuff to do with, you know, Joe Beth Williams sort of thrashing around in the mud and the bodies popping up. It feels like the Goonies, which is something that came up the first time we talked about this movie. You know, it's, Wow, skeletons! Like, wow, that's scary. <laughs> and and that's really like that's really what they're going for. I mean, I know there's there's other stuff going on here, but that's the the one that really, if you'll pardon the pun, leapt out at me is when they're pulling out of the garage, they're pulling out of the driveway, and the coffin sort of shoots out of the ground, and the body lands on the windshield. <laughs> that's you know that's sort of what they're that's sort of what they're playing with, and it's just that I feel like that's one of the tools in Steven Spielberg's pre-PG-13 bag of tricks is, look at all these skeletons! And I'm sure there's some of that in some of the Indiana Jones movies, too, if you think about the the first uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. So, so it's fine. It works. It does feel a little bit more like a fourth act than a third act because, really, the emotional climax of the film is... Carol Ann getting rescued. So this really is just about tying up the loose threads of what was actually causing the the haunting. But even that raised the question for me, especially now that we've seen Terrified and have talked about all this, is there's the only house that's being haunted? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like that should have been affecting the the larger area. Now that's not, you know, that's, that's sort of neither here nor there, but that did strike me as just a question that was sort of left unanswered. Why is it only this house? Why is it only this family? Oh, can I interject there, uh, Vic? Uh, My interpretation in this viewing, which I like a lot, actually, and I I believe there's some credence to it, is that this is another demon movie. And the beast is a demon, a la paranormal, a la, you know, half of the scarier of the movies in our field. And the beast found Carol Ann, who was receptive, via their TV, and it th- this sort of relationship that she welcomed with the dead first. Like, she sort of had been quietly communicating with these confused, not super conscious souls that think they're still alive and all of that. And this is becoming kind of a a regular thing. And this thing jumps on her as a, as a power source. And maybe it's just that none of these other families or kids had kind of made themselves so vulnerable. I'll, uh, you know, playing with a Ouija board or whatever. Well, with Carol Ann in this case, in this house, uh, this was, this was sort of the lure. That's how I, I interpreted that. And I actually, I like that. That seems like a broad interpretation, though, given the information the movie provides you to work with. I mean, the only thing you ever really understand about what's going on in the other world is provided by Tangina, who doesn't imply anything of the nature of of a demon. It seems Mm -hmm. like a concept that you'd have to extrapolate from watching other films in order to apply to this. 
No, I, I disagree. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I am armed with all of this knowledge and experience of, the, of these other movies. But if you want to look at her description of the beast, it is exactly like a demon in the other movies. She doesn't call it a demon. She calls it a beast. But, you know, that's semantics in my mind. Fair enough. I mean, again, there's, there, there are certainly interpretations. A lot of what this part of the movie is doing is tying together these narrative loose threads to explain why the house is being haunted. I actually like that. I like the way that those story threads tie together. They tie in Craig T. Nelson's job and his boss and some of the conversations that they've had. I think they work those elements in more organically than in a lot of other movies that we've, that we've watched for this. But that's really sort of the purpose is it's fireworks and you move the you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. And it's a long time to spend on that. It's it, it's good. Again, I, I don't want to I'm not shitting on the ending of this. Uh, it's a it's a good ending, but it does not blow me away in the way that I think some of these other films do. You know, I, I think that the three of us are really kind of on, on different pages here. And it's interesting because I did not love watching the movie this time at all. I mean, I, okay, that's, that's not fair. I saw lots of problems with it. I thought it was dated, silly and over the top, but, and I can't argue strenuously against any, any statement along those lines, but act three here to me is pretty sensational chaos you're not really expecting a fourth act because it was pretty novel. Uh, you could really fake people out with what appears to be the climax and feels like the com- climax. You really do think that the this family might be out of the woods and the house is clean. They got the kid back and all is well. And then it goes bananas in the house, like full on end of the changeling on crack kind of bananas. And I really enjoy it. I, I think this is a tremendously entertaining Finale. I think poor Joe Beth Williams getting Tina'd from Nightmare on Elm Street without the evisceration is awesome. Both kids are about to get sucked into the closet. Then we have coffins popping up like whack-a-moles all over the property, like everywhere. And those are real fucking skeletons, guys. I I, I assume you guys know that? Yes, I, I have mm-hmm. heard that. And I do want to point out a thought that I had watching it this time is that the scene with Joe Beth Williams where she's getting pulled around the room is is really effective. Do you notice the first thing that this spectral force does is like pull her shirt up? Yeah. And it yeah. feels like it feels like the first overtly sexual thing in the whole movie. Yeah, that that was weird. I don't know what to make of that, Vic. Yeah, I don't again, I don't either, but it was just it was something that I really was taken aback by a little bit that that was in that moment that was sort of what they what they chose to have this this spirit do. Yeah, when I was a kid, I felt definitely kind of this, you know, dirty thrill at that. I'm like, ooh, what's going on here? Oh, wow. You know, and it definitely is still, you know, something that has a certain power to it. But, it, it yeah, it's not it's not consistent with anything we know about the, the beast or, you know, there, there really is no kind of prurient interest up to this point from the – the point of view of the spectral forces. So, yeah, it, it is a little discordant. That whole scene has had just has a touch of like exploitation to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like we can get into a philosophical conversation about 
exploitation at another point in time. But yeah, obviously back then it was kind of par for the course and maybe they were just sort of slipping it in to give, you know, a little extra um, something different that audiences would enjoy or part part of the audience might enjoy. Uh, But we'll leave that aside for now. Back to the skeletons. I, I assume our listeners know this, but maybe they don't. Uh, as touched on by Clue Gallagher, not Clue Gallagher, um, George James Karen, who plays the guy who runs the um, who, who's Craig T. Nelson's boss in this. He in Return of the Living Dead talks about where they get medical skeletons, and they're all from India. And that's exactly what they used in this movie because at that time it was very expensive to do fake skeletons. And I think that this movie, the fact that they are real skeletons, they look real and they just kind of dress them up with some rotting flesh and stuff. I think this is kind of the opposite of uncanny Valley happening and your eye just kind of knows on some primal level that these are real dead people. And I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people, when they talk about this movie, this is the most memorable element in the entire film, whether they know they're real skeletons or not. But just in the course of my lifetime, people talk about the the coffins popping up and all the dead bodies at the end of the movie. I think it is a real standout in a, in a film with a ton of very memorable moments. And as we've all talked about, I think that there's a lot of value to the classic final beat that has kind of become an archetype in its its own right, which is the the staging of that amazing final scene where Craig T. Nelson banishes the TV from their holiday in room. It, It just ties the whole mythology of the movie into this very memorable final release of tension that nonetheless reminds you of the living hell that this family has been through. And... I guess we got, I'm on an island here, but I think this is in the running for best ending in terms of the overall best act three of the whole tournament. So that that's where I stand. I, I don't think this is a perfect movie, but I think this act three is, is awesome. So that's, that's where I'm going to lend, uh, end off. Do, do either if you guys want to address that specifically, or should we move on to the orphanage? I'd say move on. I, I want to say, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with that. I don't think that the final act itself is something that I, I find is especially exceptional, but I'm also not prepared to pitch an alternative right now. So, Vic, you got anything? Not as good as the ending of our point, but I guess we'll never get to talk about that, assholes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, here's one of Vic's favorite movies, which is The Orphanage. And uh, this could get heated. We're not going to talk about the filmmakers or the actors too much unless they come up along the way. Um, we've touched on that in the past, and we're the movie to advance. Uh, we'll get into a lot of that stuff more granularly. But uh, we're kind of trying to keep on the format here and get through these these pairings, and that leads us to highlight sequence. So, uh, Vic, why don't you lead us off with your highlight sequence of The Orphanage? My highlight, and I think there are many, but the one that I picked for this specifically is the first scene when the the kids are coming for the first day and she's just had this fight, uh, Laura has just had this fight with Simone and she's hit it, which was a totally shocking scene. And then 
she's in the hallway and she sees the little boy with the mask on. And that by itself is a really indelible image for me of that boy and his clothes, the, the, everything about the, the, the production design, the costumes, it's just really creepy, but that she winds up, she, she reaches for the mask and he shoves her in the bathroom and then slams the door in her hand, which is a really visceral scene. She screams and then tumbles backward into the bathtub. She pulls the shower curtain down with her when she, when she's in there. And then you see the little boy lock the door and then he pulls the key out and he presses his hand flat against the door with the key against the glass. The glass is, is sort of translucent. So everything is a little bit obscured, which I always find adds a, a certain element to creepy imagery like that. And then he's gone. It reminded me of the, the opening scene of the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake, which I also think is, is a, a super intense scene. But I just remember her running into the bathroom, locking the door and, and literally just collapsing into the bathtub in very much the same way. And that whole sequence really got a hold of me. I think it's, I think it's an exceptionally tense, scary scene that is just really well filmed and executed and acted. And it, it leads into this scene where Simone is missing and they're searching for him. And then she winds up at, at the beach and she breaks her leg in a really graphic compound fracture. And the, the compound fracture and the fingernails coming off are two of my pressure points when it comes to violence in horror films. If you want me to physically cringe and react to a scene in a movie, those are the two things to do. And they do them within like five minutes of each other. Um, that, uh, Vic, uh, I trauma wants to know why you forgot it. I, I like to write. I trauma. <laughs> it doesn't give me, I mean, look, nobody likes, you know, everybody reacts to the, the wood splinter through the eye and zombie or check out darkness rising. If you like, I trauma, I actually don't have that same physical reaction to I trauma that I do to compound fractures and fingernails. The fingernails thing goes back to horror nerds pay attention. The video dead, which is probably not a good movie, but when I was a kid, I watched it and there's a scene where a woman is being drugged down a hallway by a zombie and she's scratching the walls as she's being dragged away and her fingernails are being pried off. I don't remember many things about that movie, but I remember watching those fingernails come off and like gagging when I was 10. Rich, Rich, I, I have to ask you, uh, rank in order, eye trauma, fingernails breaking off, and compound fractures in terms of what, uh, what is the, the worst to the, the least uh, skin crawling for you? Uh, if we're just talking about skin crawling, I'd say probably eye. I think eyes would probably come up first, followed by compound fractures and then fingernails. Um, yeah, me too. Just in terms of in terms of like what I'd want to happen to me, 
Yep. Um, that's a, I don't know, that's a, that's a tougher question, actually. But just to watch. <laughs> Dude, eye trauma is definitely the last thing, like, I want to happen to me. And I think it's the thing that I dread most. Even if, in reality, if it happened, it probably isn't as horrible as we actually think it is. I was thinking about this recently. I don't know why. I guess I'm a sick motherfucker. But I was just thinking, you know, <laughs> it probably... I mean, yeah, you have nerves there, and, and it's terrible. But like, it would just—it would just really hurt. You're not really like, you know, dwelling on the fact that oh, my, one of my windows to the world has just been de- extinguished. You know, like you wouldn't be uh, elevating it beyond anything else that would that would hurt that much. And, and and you could still function also in a pinch, like in, in a life or death situation. Um, so yeah, sorry for that tangent. But I'm um, fascinated by the by the anatomy of eyes, and and I like the idea that when you puncture an eye, it just kind of oozes out like it's uh, like yeah. jelly or like a half cooked egg. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good like horror movie imagery of like the it's hanging from the eye socket, like it's halfway down the cheek or. You know, it sort of bursts and oozes like you're talking about, Rich. I mean, I think it's definitely – I think a compound fracture is definitely second. I'm not going to say that the fingernail is breaking off. I mean, I, I wince big time in the scene that Vic is talking about when when she, you know, kind of peels off her broken fingernail and that bats up. It, it's quite good. But I want to say the compound fracture did not affect me that much. I think it was poorly um, poor, poorly done. It's something that I actually felt like this last time – um, I should have backed it up. I, I feel like I want to watch it again because it happens so quickly and I don't think you actually see anything. She stumbles and then there's a very quick shot of her leg and yeah, it doesn't Dude, look good. And then she moves on. You get a pretty good visual of it. You don't totally understand why she trips. I don't think No. like it's not clear why she sustained the in- injury other than just like she tripped on something, but like you get a, you get a pretty good glimpse of it. It happens so quickly, man. I mean, I don't know. I've seen this like twice in the last three months, and like I, I think it's a blink and you miss it kind of thing. Personally, it made an it made an impact on me. I agree with Rich. It was it was not long. If they'd held it any longer, I it would have been hard hard for me to watch. Huh. And I I gotta say, like this movie definitely deserves a shout out to the effects department. Uh, both. Both last time and this time, like, I am just – I'm struck by all of the effects, maybe with the exception of uh, the the uh, Victor, the the burned kid or whatever. I don't know what's wrong with him. But the the kid with the with the mangled face, like, his is, like, doesn't feel quite as compelling. But I do feel like all of the bodily – what look appear to be practical effects in this film are really pretty, uh, pretty uh, skin-crawly. His name is Tomas, and Rich, I think you should talk to your therapist about why you came up with Victor. Tomas, why don't Yeah, it's weird. I want to... Well, Victor is one of the, the kids, the ghosts. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Right, you're right, yeah. Um, Vic, I just want to say, for the record, I actually chose the same scene. I came to that scene as a, and I, I do have backups to discuss, but I came to that scene feeling like it was kind of a cop-out where I was like, well, I feel like I just like don't have anything like better to 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 say about anything. Partly because I do feel like this is this is a movie that to me on a second viewing held up even better, and that there are a lot of strong scenes in it. But I I, I think that this scene, as you described very well, 
is a it's a real first taste of blood in this movie and it's a it comes at about a half an hour in and the movie up until this point has been a little soft and heartwarming you you know that it's going somewhere dark or at least i i guess you do if uh if you you know know why you rented the movie in the first place but all the scenes that have led up till now haven't indicated that you're getting into much of a horror movie, a ghost movie, maybe, but a horror movie. No. And this scene is a late statement of intent. It is a, not only a chilling and frightening scene that comes out of nowhere, um, but it's also a pivotal scene that that's going to resonate, you know, later in the, the climax of the film. Um, it's much more than just a scary beat. It's part of the story. It's cool. It's a good scene. I think this is just dawning on me, so I want to throw this out there. One of the things that one of the the Mike Kuchak tests that he used to to bring up when we would talk about movies is is there is there a movie here? Is this a movie you would watch if you removed the horrific element? And this does feel like it could be a dark family drama about these parents and the the wife is an orphan the mom is an orphan and they've adopted this child who's HIV positive and now they're going to open an orphanage and the child disappears like that's a movie that that I would watch and then you throw in this supernatural element and you really get something from it one of the weaknesses I think of Poltergeist is Poltergeist is a sitcom until the until the supernatural element is introduced. I'm not sure it has the the underlying dramatic interest that this movie does. And that's something that's just crystallized for me as I was listening to you talk, Rich. Oh man, I don't know, guys. I I, I think that's the wrong litmus test here. Uh, for one thing, that's the whole point of Poltergeist. It's not that the kid, one of you know, Carol Ann has AIDS, or you know, which by the way, I think in this movie. That's an interesting element, but that actually speaks to one of, I think, the flaws of this movie is that there's so many things going on in this movie and not a lot of them go anywhere for me. I mean, like this ends in a very narrow place and I don't like that place. But putting that aside, I think Poltergeist, the whole point of it is, is that they're a completely normal, relatable family that aren't in a fucking drama already, and then you just add a supernatural element. And I don't think every movie needs to be that. And I think that's part of what makes Poltergeist so relatable, is that it isn't playing that game where, well, this would already be this crazy situation. And, and, and on that note, I mean, isn't it somewhat ridiculous that this woman comes back and she's going to you know, reopen the orphanage and, but she's only going to have six or seven kids there and they have down syndrome. Uh, all of the ones that I saw uh, essentially. And it's just like, there's all of these things that don't really fit together that well. And I could go on and on and maybe we will eventually if this movie advances, which I think it might, but it's just, I don't know. I, I understand what you guys are saying, and I love the scene that you're, guy, you're talking about. Both of you chose the same highlight sequence here, though if Rich wants to throw out another one, given the opportunity, I think it's a very powerful scene. It's very visceral. It's very effective. I personally, I like the first act of this movie very much, very much, and it's mostly downhill from there. There's, there's a huge high point, which is my highlight sequence. 
I think it it gets off to a fantastic start. I'll say that. So, Rich, anything else to say, or do you want to throw out your alternate? Uh, why don't you go with your scene? Okay. I'll see if I can anything to add after that. Okay, great. Great idea. Well, for me, I mean, this is not even close. The highlight sequence of this movie is when we realize what happened to Simone. I mean, that is such a gut punch to see the combination of bad luck, a mistake the mother made, but she can't really be blamed for, but it does make her responsible and all the sort of irony and chance and dark fate and everything involved in that and the strong emotions that both her son and the and the ghosts have fomented and kind of combined and how it played off of her and sort of the tragedy that 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 all these factors came together to create i think if the movie had ended there on that realization I would have liked it so much better on some level. I mean, give her the fleeting, bittersweet reunion with her son. That's magical realism enough for me. Don't undercut the savage power of it with this treacly, sweet, magic universe ending. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I just love the montage of images explaining what happened to Simone. It's amazing, as is Laura's brief time with him again. I think there was a way to make this movie poignant, which it desperately wants to be. And I guess that's why the audience was clapping for ten minutes at the end of the credits in, at Cannes, which I would not be doing. But, uh, you know, I, I have my own criteria. Anyway, I think there was a way to, to have your cake and eat it too here, guys. You could have had that and not make it utterly depressing, which is the risk if you end the movie around the point that I'm talking about. But then you wouldn't have ruined the highlight sequence's audacious statement about the cruelty of life. Alas, it's it's all too brief, and, and we move on from there into territory that undercuts it completely. So that's my highlight sequence. I I'm not going to go into another sequence. I, I'll give a uh, you know I'll give a quick shout out to like my backup is just a. What I think is a, a great piece of storytelling and filmmaking, which are the two treasure hunt sequences. I definitely have some questions about the first treasure hunt. I'm actually unclear as to did Simone set up the treasure hunt or or was it actually one of the, the kids? Because Simone actually already knows what's in the, the paperwork and he knows his background. So did did Simone set up that treasure hunt? Does anyone know or have a theory? I, I had the same thought that you did, Rich, and I want to say that I love both of those sequences too, and I think that that's a you know very high on my list of, of things that work the best in this movie are those sequences, but I think it is very much open to interpretation at what point the ghosts really come into play here and how much do they do so? I mean, we, we have these two, you know, Pepe and something or other, the kind of uh, ghost friends or imaginary friends that he comes into this situation with. And those aren't the actual ghosts. She knows the actual ghosts. So at what point does sort of his imagination start to be replaced by, and this is actually interesting. I mean, look, I think this movie is worthy of, of further study because I was actually really intrigued watching it. Like, does Tomas only come into play 
when they go out to the cave and he actually, they both invite him back. And was it possible that his ghost was kind of stuck there and sort of the leaving of the shells and everything kind of leads him back. And in some way his return is the catalyst for the power sort of amping up to a level that, that, that has a life of its own later. I mean, I think those are all really interesting questions to ask and I think it's, it's fascinating and cool, but, but no, I don't have a decisive answer. Vic, do you have any thoughts on it? I so there's a moment when she keeps asking Simone, "Did you set this up? Did, did you set this up?" And he seems very genuine in his sort of enthusiasm, and and I don't think he did. I think it was the ghosts. But then at the end of it, he knows all the information that's in the paperwork. Oh, but the ghosts told him. We know that for sure. Yeah. At that point, how the hell does the ghosts know? Well, the ghosts are watching everything that happens in the house. They might have. They might have heard the conversation with the the woman with the coke bottle glasses, which is. By the way, I I have that as my runner up for the highlight. Just as a, it's such a minor thing, but it makes such a difference that the, the that woman's glasses make her a character without almost anything else having to be done. I just thought that was such a that was such an interesting touch that really that really sparks that part of it. That character is my low light, but we'll get to it. Anyway, to, to, to pull back from that digression just a tiny bit, yeah, those two treasure hunts are, I mean, A, they're just, they're just fun. Like, the, the energy of them, the way that you see, like, her kind of come to life over the course of the first one, you see a bond that, you know, you've seen elements of it throughout, but the way that they in, engage together, and even, like, the clues that they go hit both times there's elements of those clues that tell you something about these characters, about their lives, about what's important to them. Um, you know, they're not major, big, pivotal moments, but they are really nicely done. And I do love that after the, you know, you've just had enough time to forget about the first treasure hunt when this, and you, like at that point, you you almost know in the back of your mind it's going to come up again. And then sure enough, when it does, you you have time to get primed and ready for it and it's fun to watch it unfold and then also leave that one last tiny mystery behind um i did want to make one comment on yours john and this is sorry this is again just another question because i feel like you're right this movie does have a lot going on sometimes a little bit to its detriment there's some things that that didn't bother me the same way that they bothered you but we can talk about them later but real question about tomas getting into the the basement where his body's found is what the hell is with the wallpaper over the door? Oh, so you're saying he he went in there, got trapped in there, and somebody wallpapered it over, essentially. I don't know. Like after I, he was trapped, after he was able to um, get through the door. I don't think that that's what happened, but I don't understand another solution, uh, another explanation of what happened. He clearly got down through that door. Yeah. Um, at least that, that's certainly what we're led to believe. And then and, uh, she she knocks the the sort of you know metal. I'm sure Vic knows what this is because you know it's part of his business. <laughs> but those stanchion things or whatever, like uh, that pins it, and that's why he can't get out, right? So yeah, that, that's a actually uh, rich huzzah. You've pointed something out that is probably a big flaw, and I, I don't know why I was oblivious to it. But yeah, obviously it was a functional door when the kid went in there, right? So what the fuck happened? Then they, they it's such a feature that it's what the what the opening credits are about. Good point. Mm-hmm. I 
I'm, I'm reminded of a, a famous story that, that may or may not be apocryphal, that after an early screening of Citizen Kane, a reporter or film critic or somebody came up to Orson Welles and said, Orson, I boy, I love that movie. I just thought it was terrific. But I, I was just wondering if Kane is alone in the room when he dies, how does anyone know that his last word was Rosebud? And Orson Welles grabbed him by the lapels and said, if you tell anybody that, I will kill you. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's one of those moments. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Del Toro has buried the other bodies of people who questioned uh, J.A. Bayona's uh, uh, choice on this, on this point. Okay. So um, – Excellent conversation, but we got to keep moving. Uh, I'll kick off low light sequence here. This isn't one sequence per se, but uh, Vic mentioned this character, and I need to rant about her. I like this up till now. I, again, I'd seen the movie twice until um, this last viewing, and now, like knowing all the machinations of the plot and having some distance on it, this really stood out as being uh, bad. Um, the old lady who used to work there, Tomas's mom, is a complete cheat as a character, and I hate her. I will say, the character's death scene is bonkers and true horror, but even that is kind of nonsensical if you look at it closely, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But nothing about this character holds up to one second of scrutiny. To me, she is a pawn in the movie's game to make things happen as necessary. At the early points that the genre demands them to happen, that's where this character comes into play. How does she get Simon Simone's file if she's not a social worker, which we learned she is not? What is she trying to accomplish by going there to meet with his mother? She walks the street with a Tomas doll in a baby carriage, but <laughs> she has the presence of mind to go try to dispose of five bags of ashes 30 years later. Presumably, people are only now in the orphanage for the first time in X amount of years since whenever, you know, she, she, the woman and her husband have bought the place. There were plenty of times, opportunities, one would think, in 30 years to dispose of these kids if, if she's really concerned about it. But no, she goes the night that she shows up and talks to Laura – she makes an infernal racket 50 yards from the house because she's so worried about going down for murder in her 70s here. What evidence is there that she even did it at this point? Also, you're telling me that as an employee who worked there for a very short period of time, which we've established, she was able to not only poison all the kids, but cremate them, leave them in the oven, and no one noticed any of this for 30 years? This character is bullshit. Her storyline is bullshit. That's all I got. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one. I almost put the scene where she... Where, uh, where she wakes them up in the middle of the night as my, as my low light. It, it also just feels like such a fake out for a different movie. And then when she pops out looking like a scared mouse and, and <laughs> you know, like ben, bends her off with a, with a shovel and just scampers out into the woods. I mean, the, the, only, yes. the, only, the only thing I can, can justify it with is that she's just like a total kook. 
Well, I'm on board with that. She absolutely is a complete kook, but they wanted to have it both ways where she's totally batshit nuts, but she's also like doing all of these things to, you know, sort of cover her tracks and and all of that. I mean, I imagine that assuming she was able to get away with everything in the first place, she's then fired, right? So she can't go. She doesn't want to go back then. And then once the orphanage closes, she thinks she's got nothing to worry about until someone buys it again X many years later. Yeah. First off, waiting for someone to actually move in is the last time that I would go to dispose of the evidence. Like, while no one is there is obviously the time to dispose of the evidence if you're worried about someone finding it in the future. So that's what I was trying to interject to say because that's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. You know what that is, John? John, that's scrutiny. (laughs) If she's that paranoid, too, I mean, let's bear in mind that, you know, she – like, her and Laura know each other. Yeah. Like, Laura, Laura doesn't remember it, but – She gives her name. Oh, oh, right. Oh, yeah, but you're yeah, right, because she was actually there. She's in the picture yeah. with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. She's not going to, like, change her appearance in any way. I also question, like, what was her long game with regards to showing up as uh, Simone's social worker? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is she trying to accomplish? I wanted to ask Vic that, since I have no idea. What was she trying to accomplish, Vic, by showing up there and posing with this file that I don't know how she got and all that? I think she wanted to know what Laura was doing there. Were they just moving there? Were they living there? Like, or uh, yeah, that she was trying to get a sense of how much danger she was in. Are you going to go into that building over there and maybe dig around in the fucking uh, (laughs) crematorium? (laughs) All right, let's put it aside. Let's put it aside. But um, who wants to go next? Uh, I think it's probably Vic's turn for low light sequence. My low light sequence is a little bit of the seance. I feel like the, yeah. the, the seance is fine as like a sort of a spin on it uh, with the flashing lights. I thought was a nice touch. And I actually liked the way that they, they were sort of tracing the lines on the, the guy was tracing her path around. Yeah, the room. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I, I agree. Thought that was a, I thought that was a nice touch. But the actual medium's dialogue, especially when she's leaving the house. I mean, the mediums are stuck with all the worst dialogue. Uh, you know, it's it's Tangina. I feel like it's the best scripted shit to say. But the the line in particular that sticks out is the you know people say seeing is believing, but it's not that. It's the other way around. Like when you believe, then you will see. And I was like, you know, like that feels like the the forced obscurity of screenwriters trying to to get something across i don't know i actually disagree with you i mean i i i can see the point but i that line resonated with me this time because that is exactly the journey that this character needs to go on meaning laura that she needs to believe first and then that opens up the, the possibility that these things can appear to her and, and, and communicate with her. Because in this world, the ghosts will be invisible to you unless, unless you believe. And I, I didn't mind that at all, actually. Oh, for fuck's sake, John. We just, we're just going to disagree about everything. Exactly. Now you're just, now you're just, being, a, you're just being contrarian. 
sucking. <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I kind of appreciated that. Though I agree with everything else you've said about this whole the the seance stuff. Well, it's funny because because yours actually your complaint flows right into I think that the payoff of that line is the the scene that that bugged me, and I I don't feel like I can I don't know I I was really like stretching for something insightful to say about this, and I'm not sure that I've I've located it. But the thing that's that stood out to me is feeling. Uh, sort of disconnected and, and a little forced was the opening sequence with them playing the the knocking on the the tree game, um, which was a a plant for you know a scene much later on, where then she plays the knocking game with the um, with the ghosts um, with with the ghost children, and like to me like that scene was that was the payoff for the the line that you're talking about, which is you know, she had to have the the moment where she finally gave in and decided to be part of their world as opposed to just kind of like playing along and, and trying to placate them. Um, and so to that end, compared, you know, next to that line, it actually seems like decent storytelling. I guess it just felt like a, to open your movie with that scene with little explanation and then to return to it later I don't know. I guess like the, the, the problems that, that John had with the movie not quite taking the horror far enough when it came to the rest of the children felt like it was starting to, to rear its head a little bit in that sequence where you were really primed for a what could have been a, a pretty terrifying scare. It could have been a really chilling moment. And it just felt a little flat. Uh, and I can not sure I can quite identify why, if it's that the, the, the children entering just looked like, you know, children in the dark or that when they when they tagged her, it was only so that they could all run away and then eventually have one of them, you know, lead Laura to uh, Simone's resting place. Anyway, that those two bits, those little bookends for all their prime placement just didn't feel like they were really driving the story forward in a way that that warranted the amount of time and and uh, loving attention devoted to them yeah that could have been like this movie's version of the clapping game in the conjuring and yeah they have no interest in making it uh turn into a supernatural suspenseful set piece kind of a thing the payoff is you know strictly non-scary i think I, there is a payoff and i don't hate it in and of itself other than the fact that i think the game is really stupid like you're what what is the game you you watch them closing in on you and you know there's little gaps when they can't move but obviously eventually if you do it enough times if you keep reciting this they're going to get to you isn't that just red light green light well yes. Yeah, but isn't there like God? I haven't played that since I was a tyke. But like, it, it is a pretty ludicrous game. But uh, Vic, uh, not only can you talk about this, it's your turn for low light sequence. I, I do want to give a quick shout out. My my real low light sequence oh. was the opening credits. Those opening credits are are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so this, Vic, uh, Rich, this movie gets off to a very poor start in your in your opinion. That's for sure. <laughs> it, it actually it actually did. It just makes up for it quickly. <laughs> I actually have the knock knock one two three scene at the end 
on probably third on my highlight scenes. I found that scene to actually be quite scary and really effective. Why is it scary to you, Vic, knowing uh, her relationship with the ghosts? Certainly the first time you watch it, you don't know her relationship to the ghosts. I think there's a lot of things that are very threatening. Remember, her first encounter with one of the ghosts, she gets her hand smashed in the door, locked in the bathroom, just to pull her fingernail off. Okay, I mean, I think that's a very valid point. Other than, like, ultimately, I think on the third time we've watched the movie, we know that that wasn't Tomas, that was her son. That's the whole point, is that that's that's Simone, like, taking out his anger on her, and then he runs away to go hide behind the wallpaper. Yep. Where did he get the sack for his head? He, because he's already found the whole point that morning is he wants to take her to Tomas's house. And because she refuses to do it, they get in this, this fight. I remember, I remember that. And so that's him outside. Cause he's mm-hmm. got the clothes, he's got the clothes on too. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% think that that is Simone because the mm-hmm. anger towards her is Simone's anger. I thought I have I have watched this movie four times and I thought it was Tomas each now, time. To be fair, I just got that this time, but I feel pretty confident about it. That was definitely my interpretation, at least at the the end of the first time I watched it, and then over the course of this movie, I I presumed it was Tomas. I I will. Say you mean that, Simone? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> well, I thought because I, the Simone. I just want to throw out if there if anyone wants to sleuth this. Uh, a good way to check would be to see what Simone is wearing um, in the basement. Oh, he's wearing – He's. she pulls the fucking mask off of him. Yeah. So no sleuth, sleuthing required. He he dies in his Tomas regalia. Right? Shit. <laughs> well, I just thought I, – I think what triggers it for me is that the the violence seems spurned when she reaches to take the mask off of him, which seemed in the mythology of the movie like that would be something that Tomas would react very strongly to. But you're right. I I, I will I will double check that because I'm not going to take anybody's fucking word for it. And <laughs> and apparently I have to watch the movie again. Well, these are all like these are not bad things. I mean, I think this is part of this sort of intrigue of the mystery, the layering of of the storytelling. So it's time to talk about the ending, everyone. And I think this could be a polarizing discussion, to put it lightly. Uh, Vic, you are the champion of the film originally. Let's talk about the ending in your eyes. How do you rate it? And specifically, how does it compare to Poltergeist? I find this ending to be emotional and and bittersweet and effective. I realize that that not everyone feels that way, and and I expect uh, to be eviscerated. But I, I wept the first time I watched this. Uh, and Emily wept when I showed it to her, which was the second time that I watched it. I, I think it's, I think there's, there's something beautiful and also incredibly sad about it. It is not scary. So it does not end on a, on a horrific note, I think in the way that we sort of expect these movies to, but I, even accepting and I, and I take your point that her finding Simone's body realizing what happened in the role that she played it in. And it's so tragic and it's so hard to, 
to sort of get your head around. But there is a storybook quality to this, or the the you know Guillermo del Toro's involvement suggests, like Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, there's something lyrical about it in the way that that maybe a fairy tale has, and that's really what where the the note that this ends on is. It's you can't call it a happy ending. I certainly wouldn't call it saccharine because she she commits suicide for God's sake, but it is lyrical and and sad and also kind of beautiful and I liked it. Vivek, they they couldn't have soft pedaled the fact that she dies more if you actually saw her in animated form float up her soul with the little angel wings and the halo and the fucking harp in her hands. All right? That would be the only way to make us more okay with how she dies. It's this ending sucks, man. I, look, I will acknowledge there's a magical realism fairy tale thing going on. Yeah. And the lighthouse is a sweet runner that kind of pays off. The whole idea, though, of the movie is um, how far would you go? And this is how far she would go. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that she chooses death versus a fresh start with the dad who I, I guess really isn't in the family circle that matters anyway, uh, because he's off to the side. I think there's interesting ideas there. And I'll even say that aspects of the scene itself, what we see are fine. I like the kids, you know, gradually recognizing her and being relieved that it's Laura and, you know, they're all together again. But for one thing, talk about sappy or saccharine as, as Rich put it, I think, or Vic, I don't know. The music is terrible. The music is terrible here. It is so tendentious, telling you how to feel, you know, strumming those heartstrings. It's sappy. It's trying to erase the memory of the trauma that has preceded it. It's trying to negate everything that I liked so much about the movie up to this point. And I think the worst of all, this is something that I didn't even get the last time we saw it, the second time I'd seen it. What really pissed me off the most this time is when the husband comes back and he finds the St. Christopher medal that he gave her and he smiles. He fucking smiles. His wife has died here. He refused to stay with her, even though not a goddamn thing has happened to him in this house. The entire movie. And the movie wants to tell us he's at peace with all of this? Fuck you. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. How do you, how do you really feel, John? <laughs> if Casper Van Dien had played the dad... Honestly, I think he might have been better. I don't even like the dad. I think I think they were almost like, you know how you avoid, uh, I'm sorry, this is kind of a sport ball reference, but you, you work around like your weak link. They barely give the guy any fucking lines. Like he's barely a part of this movie. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. He, he can play the piano. Yeah. Yeah. We get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... I mean, look, I I would say I am more in your camp, John. Certainly, with regards to the to the father, that that bit is such an afterthought and so unnecessary. Yeah, it has it, it has all the feeling of a an early screening 
where the film had been completed and principal photography is over and then, you know, and they did a rough cut of it and suddenly someone's like, hey, what happened to the dad? Yes, French, or, yes! Or that, or that some producer somewhere was, was like, oh, wait a minute. I don't understand. Is she dead or what? <laughs> you know? And so it's like, we need to like make it crystal fucking clear. So we bought a cheap tombstone and flew just the dad out for one day to come out there. I also didn't, I also was confused by the, the necklace and the fact that the, the doors open when he picks up the necklace. And I was like, was this something that was just, that was explained about the necklace that I'd missed somewhere in the, in the, the script when it was given to her? Like, does it allow him to like see the dead? Is he able to communicate with her? Is he, is he seeing that she's there with the kids and that's why he's smiling? Why does it, and why, why does it cut off? Like when you make an edit like that, you know, hard to black, like you're implying a story that's about to, to kick into action. And I have no fucking clue as to what it is that they were implying was going to happen next. Other than the dad seeing that she was at peace. I'm with you on all that. That said, I actually don't, the, the, so on, on this viewing, I don't have that big of a problem with Laura's ending. I think the only thing that, that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And, and actually what confused me the first time I saw it is that, you know, that clueless producer was right. It's actually very unclear that she's killing herself. She just is like, she takes like, what, like two handfuls of, of pills, and they're not even, don't even appear to be big handfuls, and then nods off instantly and is suddenly dead. I mean, that doesn't necessarily register very well, just on a filmmaking standpoint. But I actually think bringing all the kids back back into the into the room again and the you know the the fact that they keep evoking the the Peter Pan and, and Wendy story actually is sort of sweet and does play into this movie's strength when you talk about comparing it to to Poltergeist you know Poltergeist has a lot going for it it's definitely a, a great class in screenwriting and in tone and, and even in, in subtext and this movie doesn't necessarily have all of that but it does have a story where I think you connect to the characters and you can respond to it emotionally on multiple levels, especially coming from that low, low in the scene immediately prior to this that, that you're that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, your points are totally valid, but I was happy for her and I did feel a certain amount of relief and even joy when she sets him down on the the floor again and, and suddenly his uh his once limp feet are are yeah. firm on the ground and you know he's alive it's a beautiful shot and it does make you feel a little okay about the ending that you had before that which i think to end on the, the beat of her in the basement you know while very like german um is just like it would just be a little too nihilistic and would send you out yeah um, on a note that you wouldn't necessarily want to to relive over and over again. So your points are valid. The, the music's over the top. I would not call this ending saccharine. I would call it cloying. It has elements that are threatening to overpower the rest of it. Its desire to be, to, to be sweet and heartfelt um, for some viewers actually capsized the scene. Um, but ultimately for me, I had a bad reaction to it the first time I saw it and this time knowing it was coming – I actually sort of enjoyed it and appreciated it for being there. You moved me a little there, Rich, because upon reflection, 
I do think that they could have pulled off. Like, I am okay conceptually with the idea that this woman has lost her son and the only happy ending we can really have is that she kind of is reunited with him and with her old friends and they're going to be ghosts together and it's not going to suck that bad. Like I can kind of get behind that. I just think they bungled it in execution and, and choices like music and choices like the dad and just sort of the overall tone of it. I think that they, they could have pulled it off while keeping sort of the bleakness of the, the highlight for the, of the movie for me. And they just didn't manage to do it. So I'll meet you halfway there. Vic, go ahead. Very German is the best description of any potential ending I've, I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to put a gun to your head. And I, I think yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of in danger of that with my version of this. Um, and <laughs> I can understand why they went away from that. <laughs> All right. Well, Vic, yeah. uh, make, us, uh, make us any other arguments that you might want to make because this, it's time to vote. I'm going to put this very simply, and I've been thinking about this for a few days. So I think I've got this articulated pretty clearly. I am more frightened by the orphanage and I am more moved emotionally by the orphanage. And that is what I will vote for. That's a, that's a pretty solid argument there, Vic. All right. I will go next because I'm going on the other side and Rich can decide it. I will go so far as to say that in a, in a vacuum, the orphanage might be a better movie than Poltergeist on, you know, by certain criteria. Poltergeist hasn't aged that well. And I think it could be fairly called a wedge of 1980s blockbuster cheese. But the orphanage makes me angry. And I was pretty bored during stretches because once you know where it's going, once you've seen the movie once or twice... A lot of stuff with the ghost hunters and all of that really drags, man. It just contributes very little of meaning. It does not actually advance the story much. So I love the first act. Then it's a great first act. Then there's a lot of treading water. And then our protagonist takes charge and advances the story. I'm not that thrilled, to be honest, about watching either of these movies again. But to me, to go against what Vic said, while I understand I respect the points that he made, I think Poltergeist is more fun. And to me, that wins the day. So I'm going to vote for Poltergeist. Rich, give us your reasoning and your rationale and then end the suspense with the actual vote. Wow, that feels like a lot of pressure. It is, actually. I was not that excited about watching Poltergeist again when this came up. I hadn't seen it in a really long time. Maybe I've written it off as like one of the relics of the 80s. And coming back and watching it again, I was really – found it very joyful. It was, a, it was a very fun movie to watch. And it was exciting to, to rediscover it and see little scenes. And I actually thought that Vic's observation about – seeing it as a, as a child and then, uh, you know, when there are children in the movie and then seeing it as an adult, um, when you're the same age of the, the parents in the movie, was was very fitting. It was like watching a new movie again for the first time and really in awe of the, the, the talents that were, that were involved in it. The Orphanage, I had not seen. This is one of the movies that, that Vic had, had ballyhooed, that's the correct word, uh, many times since I had met him and I had just never gotten around to seeing it. I knew it was Spanish. I knew Del Toro was involved. 
um, I felt like I'd kind of already seen it before uh, I'd ever laid eyes on it. And I was wrong. I found this movie to be very gripping the first time I saw it. It feels, despite the cloying ending, despite the problems we have with it, I agree with you about the, the slowness in the middle of it, but The Orphanage is truly a, a horror movie. It scared, The scares in this film, when they come in, they deliver and they deliver hard, and they are punctuations in a story that, while it has some, some holes, maybe, and some flaws ultimately really wrapped me up in it. This was a book. This was a journey. This was a real story. Poltergeist is an exciting roller coaster ride. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, this, this is, this sounds more harsh than a, than I actually mean it, but I kind of think of Poltergeist as being kind of like a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When it came time to watch them again, for this screening, I only had so much time in the day, and I made a decision. I chose to watch Poltergeist on my phone while I was painting baseboards. For the orphanage, I chose to actually sit down, and for the second time in just a couple of months, sit down on the sofa, turn off all the lights, and spend my evening just focused on that. And that says something about the quality of the film. So I'm going to vote for the orphanage. Remember this the next time I ballyhoo a film, Rich, okay? <laughs> When, with the Vic. when Vic ballyhoos, we better listen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, honestly, I'm not. I'm not mad because what, what makes me mad is that one of Session Nine or The Pact are done. Because I like both of those movies a lot more, and I find both of them a lot more interesting. But at the same time, I I can't. As I said, you know, I. The Orphanage is a damn good movie, and it's probably a better movie, you know, in terms of complexity and nuance and subtlety and just craft, at least, you know, when you when you don't give the handicap of Poltergeist being in, you know, made 1985 and sort of trying to be more daring with its visual effects than it, it had the technology to, to pull off. Um, also, I will say that I think there's interesting things, and we started to talk about them. There are mysteries and nuances and layers to the orphanage that are that we haven't gotten to, and I can't say that I don't want to. So I'll, I'll live with it, and uh, so be it. And part of it is that I agree. I think, you know, Rich, you really nailed it when, when you said that Poltergeist just is kind of a shallow movie. And I think if we, if we gave it the, the autopsy, treatment i think there would be i'd be more talking about like just little quirky nuances and you know goofy little things like (laughs) the stuff that craig t nelson says to his wife and they're they're clowning around and like all of that is fine but it's not really all that powerful or or horror movie specific so whereas i think the orphanage will be meatier for us to sink our teeth into. I will live with it. Vic, any, any final thoughts? Yeah. I think that the, the point of this competition is to identify the greatest horror film ever made. And, and this specifically is the greatest haunted house film within those parameters. I feel like poltergeist is just at a bit of a disadvantage because that's not what it's striving to be. 
it's a it's a roller coaster. It's fun. It's it's funny and amusing, and it and it does have some layers, and it does have some it does have some stuff that would be interesting to talk about. But I I do agree. It, it, again, if you measure a horror film by how how scary it is or how violent it is, just thinking about our our scorecards and and some of the stuff that we've talked about before that. I just think the orphanage, just within the, the specific parameters of a horror film, the orphanage comes out, I think, a hair ahead. Poltergeist is scary enough. I mean, for a PG fucking movie, it's and, pretty fucking well, scary. But Exactly, but this isn't for the best PG horror film. Right, right. This is for the best this is for the best horror film. This is for all the marbles. So I, I this is this is not an easy call and Poltergeist is great and if you haven't seen it you should see it. If you want to know what the eighties were like, you should see it. But, I wanna I wanna point out, out that this is a big upset. Poltergeist was our number four seed, the orphanage is thirteen. So this is actually our biggest upset yet. I believe that that's bigger than Paranormal knocking off a tale of two sisters. So there you go. I just fucked up all the gambling. Sorry guys. <laughs> Hey, you know, what would March Madness be without some big upsets? All right, well, it took a little while to sort that one out, so we're going to make this episode a multi-parter. Tune in next time for another pair of films, and until then, don't build on a Native American burial ground or accidentally trap your kid in a cellar. Adios! Adios!